0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations.
1: From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory.
0: Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines, I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Ed Ayers. An English prince has his heart set on an American actress. On May 19, 2018, Prince Harry of Wales is set to marry California native Meghan Markle. When the couple's relationship became public, the press coverage was so intense and so negative that the royal family issued an official statement warning the press off. The royals
2: rarely talk about their love lives, but Prince Harry just confirmed that he is dating American actress Meghan Markle.
1: Yeah, he broke the news in order to slam the press. He is royally upset
3: about the way his girlfriend is being treated, calling it of abuse and harassment, racial undertones, outright sexism and racism of social media trolls. Meghan's father is white. Her mother is African-American. The
1: private life has has to be private. But this is not the first transatlantic royal relationship, and Meghan Markle is not the first American woman to become a tabloid sensation after getting involved with a British royal.
4: The world's press reported on it and took photographs. This is historian Anne Seba. And there was one photograph in particular with her hand resting lovingly on the king's arm.
1: That photograph was taken in 1936. The woman resting a proprietorial arm on her beloved was about to become the most hated woman in England. She would set off a constitutional crisis which shook the British monarchy to its foundations. She was an American divorcee named Wallace Simpson.
4: She was brash and open and had affairs, and that was very different from the sort of sheltered English rose type of woman. In 1928,
0: Wallace Simpson had arrived in London with her second husband, Ernest, an Anglo-American shipping executive.
4: She wanted real money, real stability. She did not want the sort of insecurity that she had seen her mother suffer from.
0: The Simpsons attended and hosted parties for members of the British elite, and Wallace stood out. She was smart, she was assertive, and she knew how to hold a man's attention.
4: And one of her early guests is the Prince of Wales, but she can't really afford to entertain the Prince of Wales and his circle in the way that she would like to. And that's really where the trouble starts because Edward is totally smitten And he loves going to visit Wallace to discuss affairs of state or to have a cocktail or rather a KT as it became known. Wallace was a dab hand at mixing a KT. And it's a slippery slope because the Prince of Wales starts giving her jewelry and furs and even sets up a trust fund for her in Canada because he does not want to lose her merely because she's worried she hasn't got enough money. He can certainly deal with that
1: little problem. Wallace Simpson soon became the prince's mistress. She wasn't the first married woman to take the eye of the future king. And normally
4: it's just an affair And when it runs its course, they'll be dumped. So Wallace was historically correct in thinking that soon enough, the affair would um, dwindle and Wallace would, like all royal mistresses, be handed back to her husband. And she was just waiting for that to happen, which shows, I suppose, that at the beginning, she totally failed to understand what a desperately needy and
1: really troubled Man, Edward was. In fact, Edward had long chafed at the restrictions of his royal role. And he says he would
4: rather die than have the sort of throne and courtiers that his father has created, the stuffy old world establishment. He says, I love America, I love all things American, and you know, it's not just trouser turn-ups and jazz and the telephone. It's American democracy. He actually says he feels the days of monarchy are over and his father's a tyrant.
0: King George V died in January of 1936. Edward was officially King Edward VIII. His feelings towards Wallace hadn't changed. In fact, it would soon become clear that he intended to marry her. And that created a whole new problem, because the King of England is also the head of the Church of England, and Wallace Simpson was a divorced woman.
4: It wasn't so much illegal as you couldn't marry in church if you'd already been divorced, and Wallace had two living husbands, so it was simply not possible for her to be queen.
0: But Edward refused to give her up. Discreet inquiries were made about how his subjects might feel about a queen with two living husbands. And it turns out, they did not approve. British dominions like South Africa, Canada, and Australia threatened to leave the empire if Wallace were made queen. The love affair became a full-blown constitutional crisis, and to Edward, there was only one possible resolution—
2: But you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do, without the help and support of the woman I love. And I want you to know That the decision I have made has been mine and mine alone.
1: On December 11th, 1936, less than a year after becoming king, Edward became the only English monarch to voluntarily abdicate his throne. The idea of a king just walking away to be with a woman, especially that woman, was unthinkable. And across the pond, Americans were just eating it up.
4: Everybody thought this was a great love story, the greatest romance of the 20th century. And so if an American woman had provided everything that a handsome, charming young prince wanted when, you know, he could have had any English rose, any aristocratic woman in the world, And he chose a twice-married American woman. Wow, she must be very, very special. So,
1: you know, of course there was American pride
4: in all of that.
1: But back in England, Wallace Simpson was a pariah.
4: Nobody knew anything about Wallace. So there really was a belief that Uh, She must have witch-like powers. You know, she must be a gold digger, an adventurous, a whore, a Nazi. They threw every single insult they could find at her.
1: Seba says that it was Edward's obsession with her that ultimately led to the couple's downfall.
4: When you look at the story, it's Edward who wanted her, Edward who was doing the chasing. But people didn't know that at the time because he didn't give interviews. And all people thought was, you know, he's handsome and charming and he's been lured away by this woman. I'm not saying she's perfect and wonderful. She did her fair share of manipulating, but she got caught by her own um, machinations.
1: Wallace divorced her husband and married Edward in a small ceremony in France, in front of a few friends. No royals attended. The couple could be together forever, and from that point onward, their relationship seemed to deteriorate. Wallace would continue to write to her second husband even after they divorced, and her letters seemed filled with regret. She refers to Edward as Peter Pan, a man-child who will never grow up. His devotion to her was claustrophobic, and she grew increasingly bitter. Seba says, few who knew the couple describe what they shared as love.
0: Despite the national trauma brought on by Edward's application, Seba says that in the long run, it may have been for the best for both the royal family and the United Kingdom
4: how lucky, because if Edward had broken up the empire, he would have done. It's impossible to imagine Britain prosecuting a war without the help of Canadian soldiers, Indian soldiers, Australian, the lot. So all of that was critical. And I do believe we got the better brother and the more supportive wife.
0: The abdication of Edward VIII removed a weak, and pro-German king from the throne at the very moment Britain was on the verge of war with Nazi Germany. The playwright Noel Coward quipped, a statue should be erected to Mrs. Simpson in every town in England for the blessing she has bestowed upon the country.
1: Even today, royal marriages can have big political consequences. And as for Harry and Meghan Markle... And Seba says while their courtship may have echoes of earlier royal relationships, there's at least one big difference. Unlike his great-great-uncle, Harry will never be king of England.
4: Harry is sixth in line to the throne. He can really do what he likes, but, but I think he will realize that... Actually, he has a job to do. And it's uh, the the survival of the royal family really depends on how well that job is done. And I think with Meghan, he will do it absolutely brilliantly.
2: So today on the show, with the royal wedding dominating headlines around the world we're looking at the surprisingly long history of American women who married into royal and aristocratic families and the often outsized political impact that those marriages had. We'll hear about American women who traded family fortunes for aristocratic status in the Gilded Age. Plus, we'll look at how women have shaped their own political dynasties here in the U.S., even if they couldn't always play a formal role in
1: politics. Now, Wallace Simpson was far from the first American woman to find a royal match. She wasn't even the first woman from Baltimore to marry into a European power. That would be Elizabeth Patterson, a wealthy young Maryland socialite whose marriage into France's imperial family became a major social and political scandal.
0: In 1803, as Napoleon was consolidating power in France, he sent his youngest brother, Jerome, on a mission to the French Caribbean. On his way back, the young Bonaparte stopped in Baltimore, where the best families of the city vied to entertain him.
5: And he meets Elizabeth at a ball. This is
0: historian Charlene Boyer Lewis.
5: They dance a dance together and literally get entangled. It's either her hair and In his watch chain, or his watch chain in her button, or the stories differ. And it it really was mutual attraction.
0: It wasn't long before the two were legally entangled as well. After a whirlwind courtship, they married on Christmas Eve. Napoleon was furious when
2: he found out his brother had gotten hitched to an untitled American. When the newlyweds arrived in Europe in 1805, the emperor personally annulled their marriage. He promptly married Jerome off to a German princess and banished a pregnant Elizabeth from the French Empire. Despite her very public humiliation at the hands of France's imperial family, Patterson Bonaparte had no intention of relinquishing her new aristocratic ties. She returned to the U.S. with her infant son, a new wardrobe, and a plan to work her way into Napoleon's good graces.
5: So even though she returns to Baltimore, you know, a rejected woman, she knows she has something incredibly valuable because this is the time period when Napoleon cannot have any children. There's only one nephew and he's kind of sickly. And so Elizabeth calculates, as long as I have a male bonaparte, they're going to still want me. So she does not at all act like a rejected woman who had the scandalous past. Instead, she decks herself out in all of the European clothing she bought while she was in Lisbon, which includes jeweled tiaras and diamond and ruby perfume (laughs) cases, and she goes to every single party that she gets invited to. So she flaunts her status, flaunts her connection to the emperor, and Americans love it.
2: And everybody knows the full deal. Everybody knows the full
5: story. It was written up in all of the newspapers. I found a a copy of a Russellville, Kentucky newspaper who had written up the whole story. So everybody in the United States, even in the most remote corners, knew this whole story.
2: Now— doesn't this sort of, you know, make her less charming and interesting to in the American scene, which is basically a huge marriage market?
5: It is a huge marriage market. But no, she's incredibly alluring because of that Bonaparte cachet because Napoleon had divorced her, she is considered available. And so she's courted by many men. She gets five or six marriage proposals. She rejects every single one of them. She seriously, however, considers one from a secretary to the British legation, Sir Oakley. And that's what galvanizes Napoleon to start a correspondence between the two of them, because Napoleon doesn't want his potential heir— Her son to have a stepfather who's British. So she writes Napoleon, takes advantage of that, and says, Well, if you offer me an annuity, which would be like a pension, and you pay for my son's schooling and you give me a title, then I won't accept any marriage proposals. And Napoleon agrees. And he gives her $12,000 a year. He's going to pay for her son's education. And he says, I'm thinking about making you the Duchess of Oldenburg. Wow. Yeah. She was
2: very uh, savvy. She has some nerve, doesn't she? She sure Uh, does. Sort of going eye to eye with Napoleon. Well, she's probably above eye to eye with Napoleon.
5: Well, Napoleon had created himself. I mean, so in that way, he's kind of like the classic American story. He was from an, an absolutely poor, impoverished, nobody knew them family from Corsica, so not even France, right? And he makes his family imperial. He makes his family royal. But Americans saw Napoleon as just this upstart nobody Corsican. And so who is he to reject a young woman of one of the finest families in America? And so Americans rankle at Napoleon when Napoleon rejects her.
2: So she goes head to head with Napoleon and he actually says, sure, I'll give you all these things and $12,000 then. That's a lot of money. Uh, And so I'm sure the Americans go, hey, good for you, girl.
5: Well, it's not exactly, hey, good for you, girl. But (laughs) they are captivated by her because they don't know what her future will be. But rumors start to swirl around about this $12,000 annuity, about this potential title. And so it was one thing to have kind of this captivating woman who's, you know, a cosmopolitan linked to Bonaparte in their midst. It was another thing to think about having somebody with a title, she being a duchess and her son being a prince living in their midst. And that kind of changes the way Americans start to think about her. So once the rumors go around that Napoleon's really connecting with Elizabeth and his potential heir, the concern is that Elizabeth's son, who's only four years old at the time, will potentially become, as one congressman called him, the emperor of the West, Other congressman, Timothy Pickering, a Federalist of Massachusetts, believes that what Napoleon's going to do is set up a court, a palace right there in the United States, perhaps in Baltimore, and Elizabeth and her princely son will live in it. And so Pickering writes, this palace is going to make the president's mansion look like nothing. And then he says, our eyes will be introduced to gorgeous scenes of royalty and soon Americans will become seduced and corrupted by these charms and will choose a king over a president, a monarchy over a republic. So we have to do something. And the sum- that's
2: very strange language. Watch out! We're going to like this too much. That's right. That's <laughs> it's going right. To be too beautiful. We're not going to be able to to control ourselves.
5: And this, they're still not sure this republic's going to work because people can be seduced by by gorgeous scenes of royalty.
2: Yeah, we're still in the first twenty years of the whole of the country, right? Exactly. So, what do they propose to so do about
5: propose, this? So they propose several members of Congress the title of nobility amendment that no citizen. Of the United States can receive a title or an annuity from an emperor or a king or a prince, and so you would have to give up your U.S. citizenship, and you could never hold office. So here they're clearly thinking about her son, right?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. And what's his name, by the way?
5: Of course, it's Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte.
2: That's, <laughs> yeah, that's <right>. subtle.
5: <laughs> that, okay. That's right. His nickname is Bo. And so they, his, his nickname <laughs> is Bo. And so they, the plan is um, that they will have this amendment that will neutralize the threat of Elizabeth and her son, Bo. And it sweeps through the Senate. It sweeps through the House. And it's sent out to the states for ratification. And everyone thinks it's going to become the 13th Amendment. But then it falls two states short, and it never becomes the 13th Amendment.
2: So, this is a lot for a young woman still in her 20s, not to mention a young boy who's four, (laughs) to to go through all this. So, what's he think about all this? Is he sort of comes uh, aware of what's going on in the world? He says, give me my kingdom?
5: No. Her son, Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, much to his mother's dismay, loves the United States, loves being a small-R Republican, and doesn't want really anything to do with the whole aristocracy, nobility stuff. He's sent over to visit his father when he's 14, 15 years old, and he hates every moment of it. He just thinks it's a vapid, kind of too luxurious lifestyle, and he wants nothing to do with it. So he tells his mother this, and he says, no, I'm going back to the United States. I'm going to take the pledge of American citizenship. I don't want to be an aristocrat. And she is so infuriated with him, and she thinks the work of her life has just come to naught because he's decided to be a patriotic American instead of an aristocrat. Wow. Yeah. So
2: when you add it all up, Charlene, what lessons do we draw from this story?
5: I think there are several lessons here. One, that Americans have always had an ambivalent attitude about royalty, about aristocracy. From the very beginning, yes, they threw off a monarchy. Yes, they thought Republican simplicity was the way to go. But aristocratic luxury was still seductive to them. It still had a place. Another lesson I think we learn is Americans have loved celebrities from the beginning of this country, too. So even in an era without mass media, without mass culture, the celebrity who has that cachet, and, and much of it is being an aristocrat, right? Or the trappings of aristocracy, the trappings of royalty and nobility. Americans like that. And she's kind of a lightning rod for all of that.
2: Well, bless her heart. But I'm glad she failed. It sounds like it's a good trial for early America to to look this in the face and decide, you know, I think we like our own way better. But yep. I do believe that celebrities today are the Elizabeth Patterson Bonapartes of, of 1803. I mean, we, that we still has everything, all the trappings of aristocracy without the threat of Napoleon taking over the country.
5: I think celebrities today wish they were as good as Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte. She had it all. She totally had it all. <laughs>
1: Charlene Boyer Lewis is a historian at Kalamazoo College and author of Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, an American aristocrat in the early republic. Earlier in the show, we heard from Anne Seba, author of That Woman, The Life of Wallace Simpson, Duchess of Windsor.
2: So far, we've heard about two women who pursued an imperial connection to the dismay of the families they married into. But titled families didn't always turn up their noses at the thought
0: of an American match, particularly if the woman came to the match with money. At the end of the 19th century, dozens of American heiresses married into the British aristocracy. Known as dollar princesses, these women were from families that had recently struck it rich. Their fathers had made their money in railroads, department stores, or the stock market, rather than inheriting their wealth. Frozen out of New York's high-society marriage market, they traded American cash for old-world status and respectability. I sat down with writer Angela Ceratori to explore how this international marriage market began.
3: If you married somebody with a title, you know, that kind of trumps everything else. And then suddenly you have access to this New York society that has perhaps been a little bit hostile. And you also have the pleasure of being able to skip it entirely because it's now beneath you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So since it takes two to tango and certainly to get married, what did the British families get out of this deal?
3: Well, to go back to your question about money talking, uh, for them, money definitely did talk, in large part because if you are an earl or a duke or a lord and you've got a large country estate, you've got to run that estate, but to have any other kind of employment— is unthinkable. It's just not something the upper classes and the nobility do. And these houses are expensive to take care of. The grounds are expensive to take care of. So if you marry a dollar princess, you've got a beautiful young wife You've got an influx of cash immediately to fix up your house, pay any of your family's debts. And you've also got a guarantee of a yearly allowance for the rest of your life, which means the sort of question of how are we going to keep up financially, you never have to worry about it again.
0: And how did the finances work and how large were they? I mean, can you give me any examples?
3: Well, it certainly varies depending on the situation and how much money any given father has. But so the first big dollar princess is uh, Jenny Jerome. And in 1874, she meets Lord Randolph Churchill. And this is a real love match. They meet on a ship. Three days after they meet, they're engaged. Both sets of families are a little bit hesitant, but the families come together and they negotiate, and Jenny's father gives Lord Randolph $50,000. So I don't know exactly what that comes out to in It's That's a lot 18th- of money. It's a lot of money in 1874, though not as much as some people get. But that's sort of the average, and then you would get maybe $10,000 a year as an allowance.
0: Is there more than just money entailed for these British families? Do they benefit in other ways from these marriages?
3: I think they do. I think a lot of these American girls are bringing a kind of American spirit to... Britain, and I think particularly when it comes to the political careers of some of these men and also the next generation. Um, One thing that we haven't mentioned is that the son that Jenny Jerome has with her husband, Lord Randolph Churchill, is Winston Churchill. Right. You know, Winston Churchill, when he was starting his political career through, you know, the end of his mother's life, very rarely made a decision without consulting his mother. And that's just not something England has really seen before.
0: So if you were to tell us about one, I don't know, most representative dollar princess, who would that be?
3: Well, there's only one answer to that, and that is Consuelo Vanderbilt, who in 1895 marries the ninth Duke of Marlborough at St. Thomas Episcopal Church in New York.
0: I recognize the last name. Vanderbilt. But what was it about Consuelo that made her such a uh, featured dollar princess?
3: It's really the work of her mother, Alva. Consuelo's mother is what the tabloids today might refer to as a momager. It is, from the day Consuelo was born, it is Alva's job to make her the sort of brightest, prettiest, best, most successful girl that society has ever seen. And when she comes on to the marriage market, every eligible suitor is interested. And the Duke of Marlborough, who in the press goes by his nickname, which is Sonny, is on paper the most eligible of these bachelors. He is the heir to the estate of Blenheim, which today is still one of the most magnificent country estates in all of Great Britain. But he's sort of a neer do And Consuelo is very sheltered. At the time of her wedding, uh, one of the newspapers says that she has all the naive frankness of a child. She's very shy. She's very close to her mother. How old
0: was she when she was married?
3: She was 18. Wow. And in the months leading up to her marriage, it's in the papers every day. There's a story about her bridesmaids. There's a story about her jewelry. There's a story, and I found this one really affecting um, a couple of weeks before the wedding, uh, about the lingerie that she's going to wear on her wedding day. And this is uh, this is a sh- sort of a shy 18-year-old girl, and I can't even imagine what she must have felt like having everybody in America read about her underwear.
0: And when you say everybody in America, so it wasn't just the uh, upper classes that were reading about themselves here. I gather this was popular with the hoi polloi.
3: Oh, yeah. These girls are celebrities. Um, the day of Consuelo's wedding, thousands of people show up outside the church, and the police are in sort of a tricky position because they've got to keep the peace amongst the crowd. But the crowd is almost exclusively teenage girls and young women in their twenties. They're tr- they're trying to figure out how to manage the sort of very real wedding hysteria.
0: So, dare I ask, what comes of their marriage?
3: Um. It's rumored that on the carriage away from the church after they're married, Sonny starts to give Consuelo the lay of the land, what her life is going to be like in England. And one of the things that he mentions is that he's got a mistress, he's very in love with his mistress, and he has no plans to give her up. And Mm. several papers and Consuelo's autobiography itself um, report seeing very real tears on her face before, during, and after the wedding. And none of these tears look particularly happy.
0: You know, I just have to ask, why would any parent do this to their daughter?
3: Consuelo's marriage is certainly the most famous of these, but it's also the moment at which people really do start to reconsider this whole enterprise. Parents are noticing that their daughters are not happy. Uh, American fathers with money, too, are getting fed up with sending their dollars Overseas. Consuelo's husband was gifted at the time of their marriage stock in the Vanderbilt Company worth $2.5 million in 1875.
0: Wow.
3: Her father, William Vanderbilt, agrees to give Consuelo and Sonny each a yearly allowance of $100,000. And a lot of fathers, in particular, start to say to their wives, you know, why don't we just keep the money at home where <laughs> right. instead of frittering it away on some guy's house, it'll actually have the chance to multiply.
0: And, and what about the cachet of uh, laundering this money, if you will, into social status? Uh, this is a period in American history where Americans are beginning to feel a little more confidence. Does, you know, does uh, a, a kind of America first Emerge when it comes to social status?
3: Absolutely. And by the time we get to the late 1890s, anybody who's really eligible has been snapped up already. And (laughs) and a lot of the husbands that come at this point are really sort of aggressively painted as mercenary. Really, the the point at which people say we've got to stop doing this is in 1903, a Pittsburgh heiress named Alice Thaw, whose father was a railroad magnate, married the Earl of Yarmouth. And their wedding ceremony was delayed several hours because on the morning of their wedding, the groom was arrested for failing to pay his gambling debts. And Alice's (laughs) father had to collect the groom from jail and renegotiate his compensation package.
0: Well, when you take a look at the royal marriage today, um, do you see any parallels with 120 years ago?
3: I really do. And I should also say that not all of these marriages are as disastrous as Consuelo's and Sonny's. Um, Mary Leiter, whose father owns a chain of department stores in Chicago marries in the 1890s Lord George Curzon. And George Curzon eventually goes on to become the viceroy of India. And virtually everybody who has a political connection to him says that this is almost entirely because of the skill and charm of his wife. They're a real romantic team and a real political team. And I think Harry and Meghan seem very much like a love match. They seem crazy about each other. I Hope they'll be very happy. But I think it's also important to remember that, particularly now, when you agree to join the royal family, you're really signing a business contract. You know, Meghan will have given up her work and taken up the job of becoming a royal. And she and Harry gave an interview on television the day after they announced their engagement. And Meghan did most of the talking
0: so, no dollar princess here, but clearly she's she's bringing a lot to the table,
3: yeah, Megan is bringing, I think a sort of future and continued relevancy to the royal family, you know every year newspapers in England run a poll? Should we even have the monarchy anymore? Is it, in 2018, perhaps distasteful to have a monarchy at all? And Meghan is new and different and vibrant, and I think that that gives them continued relevancy.
2: Angela Ceratori is a writer based in New York. You can find her article on Dollar Princesses How American Rich Kids Bought Their Way Into the British Elite on Smithsonian.com. So, thinking about the women we've heard about on the show today, it seems like something that all their marriages have in common— is that they're covered in the tabloids and such, but they have a real political impact as well. So the dollar princesses in particular got me thinking about how marrying well also had a political impact for families here in the U.S. You know, A wife like Jenny Jerome or Mary Leiter could bring money to the table that her husband could use to run a political campaign, and she could also bring political connections and her own political savvy, even if women couldn't participate in in politics directly.
1: So Brian, Joanne, do you think these kinds of political marriages have happened in American history? Um, Well, you know, I mean, I think if what we're talking about is in one way or another, um, I don't know if I want to call it a fair trade, but certainly a trade of sorts in which two people come to a relationship and each brings something. Um, If you go further back in time, to the founding period, for example, there are women, I think, who bring a lot to marriages of influential husbands that I'm sure they came with their money attached. But more than that, they brought social skills. They brought the ability to actually be, in a sense, more effective politicians than their husbands. And I'm thinking particularly of Dolly Madison, uh, and Louisa Catherine Adams, who's John Quincy Adams' wife. So you're and saying those guys
0: cases. were political stiffs and they needed a little help.
1: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. They were They were not the most sort of vivaciously, wonderfully social huh. human beings, and their wives were. And their wives were sort of mastered that domain. And in the case of Dolly Madison, really kind of created uh, a sense of place and purpose uh, for the capital and for the Presidency and
0: were people aware of that, or did they like just attribute all those good things to the guy?
1: I think in the case of Dolly Madison, they were very uh-huh. aware. I mean, because some people called her Queen Dolly. That's
2: a pretty good she indication. Very clearly yeah, Yeah, was,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, in the case of Louisa Catherine Adams, I don't know if it was quite as blatantly obvious. Which would make it all I the would... more
0: effective in a way.
1: Exactly. Well, exactly. And I think in a sense they were more of a pair. I think that they were a politicking pair. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a different kind of a way.
2: You know, what's really striking to me is that sounds like a great precedent that turned out not to be one. (laughs) Because Because after them, I have a hard time thinking of any woman in the White House
0: who exerted really much of a positive influence. When we think of first ladies, we think of first ladies who are kind of held up in scorn, in a way. Yeah, well,
2: the the woman who wished so badly to be of great help to her husband was Mary Todd Lincoln. And he married her in part because he thought that she would be helpful politically. Uh, Not only did she come from a prominent family, and not only did she have social skills that he lacked, but she was also ambitious in a way that he wasn't always ambitious. But unfortunately, those things didn't really work out in the cauldron of Civil War Washington. Well, People were not really impressed with her finery and with her uh, insistence that during wartime that she needed to have all those dresses. I see. And this is kind of scandalous that she had to have dozens of pairs of gloves. Uh, That was a major scandal (laughs) that people were just appalled that she was so, you know, pretentious in a time when so many people were suffering. And so she ended up being a great political liability to Lincoln for exactly the opposite reason that he had hoped.
1: That sounds like it's a, a wartime problem as opposed to a Mary Todd Lincoln problem. We'll would never that, know, that Joanne. The uh, that's Ooh. the only time
2: <laughs> that they serve. You know, <laughs> it, it very well could have been. It could have been that in a, a time of gaiety and prosperity, that that would have been just what this— stiff Abraham Lincoln guy needed. So that reminds Mm -hmm. us that a lot of this is context. Unfortunately, apparently, there's decade after decade of context in which that doesn't work, called the Gilded Age. At the very same time that these dollar princesses that Brian was talking about are flourishing, you don't have women who are prominent in the White House, except for the somewhat icky instance of Frances Cleveland, who... Mary's in the White House when she's 21, who had been the ward of Grover Cleveland, her new husband, throughout her life. Um, And even though he's 48 and she's 21, she does have some of the skills you're talking about, Joanne, that Dolly Madison has. She's vivacious. She sort of makes the White House a place to be. But other than that, the 19th century is kind of a smoking crater when it comes to influential (laughs) women in the White House.
0: Yeah, and I, I would say that when you get to Lady Bird, Johnson, she was the key to financing Lyndon Johnson's early political career. Ah. Uh, She had come in to some wealth, certainly a lot more wealth than Lyndon Johnson, and her financing and her advice and partnership in Lyndon Johnson's early political career before they had kids was really crucial to the success of both of them, perhaps that kind of pair initially.
1: So, I mean... Essentially, it feels to me that what we've been saying here is we're we're talking about a number of different um, things that women are bringing to these marriages. And sometimes it's social skills, and sometimes it's money, and sometimes it's a political agenda. Uh, Sometimes there's a partnership. Sometimes it it really is men looking for a woman to give them whatever it is that they need for their political purposes. But I, I kind of feel like I want to put in a word for amorphousness and ambiguity, because the fact of the matter is we're talking about exchanges, but in at least some of these cases, there's also sincere emotion involved too, right? So we're talking about something that's practical, but that's also tied up with emotion and hopefully in some cases, love. And that's that's part of this too, right? We, that's we, part of the we don't, mix.
0: We're not allowed to discuss that on We don't show. do love.
1: <laughs> oh, but I'm a woman, so exactly. I can say love.
0: <laughs> Bingo. Well, I think it's
2: one of the yeah. things that made the Obamas so effective is that their mutual devotion was so obvious, but so was mm-hmm. her chops, and so was his right. respect for her chops, proudly independent people who are also devoted to each other. Professionals. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it may be that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are sort of in the Obama mold, mm-hmm. that they're both coming into it with their own distinct personalities, their own distinct trajectories and credibility but are devoted to a common purpose. The difference is you don't actually become royal in America, uh, (laughs) but you do become forever the former president and the former first lady.
0: That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org. Or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was
2: produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Courtney Spagna. Aaron Teeling, Korean Thomas, and Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Pottington Bear, and Jazar. Thanks, as always, to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore.
1: Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, The Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment.
0: Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.